Welcome to the Building the Elite Podcast, where we discuss the physical, mental, and emotional aspects of human performance within military special operations by looking at the principles that can help anyone thrive in chaotic and challenging environments. Years ago, off the coast of California, a SWIC detachment and a SEAL platoon were training together around an island. One of the SEAL team guys had dropped something important off the boats. I can't remember anymore what it was. It's either a weapon, a radio, or maybe a set of night vision goggles. And in any case, losing a controlled item like that is a big deal. It could damage careers up the entire chain of command, including getting the commanding officer fired. So, the SEAL officer in charge was working out a plan to get this thing back off the ocean floor and then never speak of it again. He turned to the SWIC navigator, Steve, who had the charts for the area in front of him alongside the GPS. And charts are Navy speak for maps. And he asked, how deep is it to the bottom right here? Steve took a moment to trace everything out and then replied, it's about 17 fathoms, sir. The officer paused thoughtfully and looked out to sea. Okay, he said, cool, cool. Everyone was silent for a moment while the officer thought about this, and then he turned back to Steve. And he asked, what the f**k's a fathom? In case you were also wondering, a fathom is about 1.8 meters. It's a unit of measurement for the depth of water. 17 of them work out to about 102 feet, which is a depth that's easily reachable by a few seals with dive tanks. And that's what they did. A pair of divers combed a search grid and eventually brought up the piece of missing equipment. One guy had to buy beer for everyone else for a very long time, and nobody who wasn't on those boats ever knew about it. But let's back up for a moment to that exchange when the navigator told the officer how deep the water was. To Steve, a fathom was a familiar unit of measurement. He looked at those numbers every day on the charts. He had to constantly keep a running assessment of water depth in his head, because the Navy prefers it if you don't drive your boats into things because you didn't notice how shallow the water was. But if you're not a navigator, a fathom is a pretty obscure measure. Divers typically track their depth in feet or meters, for example. Fathoms are an odd relic of the imperial measurement system, where Americans find bizarre ways to measure things using anything but the metric system, from determining how many hands tall a horse is, to estimating distance in football fields, to yes, how many fathoms deep the ocean is. Despite this obscurity, Steve tossed out the depth measurement in fathoms without a second thought. For at least that moment, he assumed that whatever was a familiar reference in his head would make just as much sense to somebody else. This is called the curse of knowledge. The curse of knowledge occurs when an individual, often unknowingly, assumes that others have the background or knowledge to understand a particular topic. In other words, once we know something, it's tough to remember what it's like to not know it, or to factor that into our communication. This can create misunderstanding, frustration, and inefficient or ineffective learning environments. Here's an easy way to see what this feels like. The next time you're around a group of friends, try an experiment. Tap your finger on a table to the rhythm of a favorite song. Don't hum or add anything else. Just tap out the song in your head. Before you start, try to predict how long you think it will take for your friends to guess which song you're tapping. In one study, people thought their audience would know what song they were tapping about 50% of the time. In practice, they only got it right about 2.5% of the time. 
That's once in every 40 attempts. Most of the time, this game starts to feel like losing at charades. You'll see people frustratingly tap their fingers harder and harder on the table to get the point across. It's like watching an American tourist try to communicate in a foreign language by repeating the same phrase more loudly and slowly in English. The word shibboleth derives from the Bible, where it was used as a password of sorts to identify members of an enemy group. Those who couldn't pronounce the word correctly met a tragic fate. That concept has evolved, and now it means any phrase, word, or practice that distinguishes one group of people from another. A shibboleth can serve as jargon or terminology that is only understood by members of a particular group. It's often used to establish identity, maintain a sense of community, or exclude or differentiate others. For instance, Allied soldiers in the Pacific during World War II would use passwords to help identify approaching soldiers in the darkness. Japanese soldiers sometimes figured out these passwords and could use them to infiltrate Allied lines and wreak havoc. To counter this, the Allies started using shibboleths, words that were difficult for Japanese soldiers to pronounce because they contained phonetic sounds that didn't exist in their native language. A popular one was the word Lollapalooza. It didn't matter if a Japanese soldier learned the password and shouted it out at a sentry in the dark because he'd struggle enough with the letters L and R that his identity would be apparent. Almost any industry uses insider lingo. For example, people in the tech industry will throw out words like API, DevOps, or repo in casual conversation. These words mean pretty simple things, but if you're not part of that world, they might sound either meaningless or intimidating. Sometimes, insider lingo or shibboleths are deliberate, but often they're not. It's just a curse of knowledge, where we forget that things that make sense to us are gibberish to others. People in the military are famous for this. They often speak in streams of acronyms because they make sense to their coworkers in their particular bubble of the military, but to anyone else, they're incomprehensible. We coach people from military and tactical units all over the world and have been doing that for over a decade, but we still have to Google what different military acronyms mean almost every day. The curse of knowledge doesn't just apply to words. It also applies to concepts and motor skills. This can be tricky because a surprising amount of our knowledge can be implicit or stored somewhere in our minds as a procedure or behavior that supports something we can do even though we can't explain it in words. As the author Michael Polanyi put it, we can know more than we can tell. For example, think of trying to teach somebody how to ride a bicycle. There are a few concrete concepts that you could outline, like the rough idea of how the bike works, what the handlebars do, and how to turn the pedals. But ultimately, learning how to ride a bike comes down to doing it and internalizing that felt knowledge. There's nothing that we could write on a piece of paper that would fully teach somebody to ride a bicycle if they didn't also spend time physically practicing it. A lot of skill acquisition is just subconsciously picking up implicit patterns. This is one of the biggest challenges in coaching and teaching. We have to bring implicit knowledge to the surface, translate it into something explicit that can be communicated in a step-by-step way, and then the person we're teaching has to practice it long enough and well enough for it to become implicit knowledge of their own. 
This is why, if you've ever tried teaching something like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, you've probably wondered, how do I do that while explaining a technique to somebody else? It's also why people often say that the best way to learn something better is to teach it, because it involves slowing down, asking yourself how you really know something, and breaking that knowledge down into small, explicit steps. There's a meme that illustrates this perfectly, that often gets passed around by frustrated students. You can Google how to draw an owl to see it, which I recommend. But the idea is that it shows you all the steps needed to draw an owl. In step one, you have a handful of simple circles outlining the basic shape of the owl. The instructions for this part say, draw some circles. Then it goes to step two, which shows a highly detailed, complete drawing. And the instructions say, step two, draw the rest of the owl. This is what it can feel like to be a student when you're trying to learn, but the instructor has skipped critical steps because they took them for granted due to the curse of knowledge. Because they know them, they assume that you also know them. You do an armbar by doing an armbar. You draw an owl by drawing the rest of the owl. Or, as Craig once experienced, you turn the boat by turning the boat. The curse of knowledge can lead us to make mistakes while translating all the implicit things that we take for granted into an explicit series of instructions to teach something. I remember watching a student driving a small boat at high speed down the Nile River in East Africa. We were teaching these students how to do formation driving and maneuvers on the river. We were using boat-to-boat hand signals to communicate things like formation changes, turns in the river, etc., Our students were very new to this, and their proficiency levels ranged from not bad to overtly dangerous. A few days prior, while driving the boats to a nearby town alone, they got one stuck in a mango tree. I don't mean that there was a tree in the river and they got tangled in it. They hit the riverbank so hard that they launched into the air and struck a tree on shore 10 feet off the ground. We had never solved the mystery of how this had happened, and I was puzzling over this while watching a student drive the boat I was on. We'd spent a lot of time on how the maneuvers worked and individually checked with the students that they understood, for instance, that this hand signal meant to turn the boat to the right and align it in a particular formation. It seemed like we had communicated everything that we needed. Then, the boat ahead signaled for a turn to the right. The driver saw it, and I quickly checked that he knew what he was doing. He nodded, pointed his hand to the right to verify, fixed his eyes on the spot he would drive toward, and then cranked the wheel to the left. At that moment, as we careened toward a riverbank of mango trees, I realized that we had skipped a step in our training process. This guy had somehow made it this far without being clear on how steering wheels worked, at least the ones on the boats. We had never thought to include this in our training process because we took it for granted. It was hard to imagine that anybody wouldn't know that turning a wheel a certain way meant turning the boat to the right. But then I thought about it some more and considered how often, as an adult with multiple decades of life experience, including engineering schools, I still had to say lefty-loosey, righty-tighty to remember which way to turn a wrench. These guys were tribesmen. They lived in mud huts with roofs made of thatched grass. They walked most places, and the most common form of transport was a giant crowded bus where you probably couldn't see the driver. 
It was possible that at least a handful of our students had never driven a car or maybe even been in one. Yet, we instructed them to use complicated machinery while skipping some of the most critical steps in understanding how it worked. We were telling them to turn this way or that way without stopping to verify that they knew how to do that. And that's probably how that boat ended up in a mango tree that day. In the case of the song tapping game, or telling an East African tribe member to make the boat turn to the right, we're projecting what we know onto our audience and assuming that their state of mind resembles ours. We're failing to understand their perspective. There is another variable that worsens the curse of knowledge, power. In this case, being in a position of power in a relationship means that someone can influence others, control resources, and administer rewards and punishments. In other words, if we're somebody's boss, parent, coach, teacher, or instructor, we're in a relative position of power. It has three interesting effects when researchers prime people in experiments to feel that they're in one of those positions. First, it makes them less inclined to adopt another person's visual perspective. In other words, it makes people less likely to try and see the world through the eyes of the other person. Second, it makes them less likely to consider that others do not possess their privileged knowledge and anchor too heavily on their own vantage point. It makes it harder to remember that others don't know what you know. And third, it makes people less accurate in determining the emotional expression of others. A position of power makes us worse at empathy, the capacity to feel and understand the feelings of others. Together, these feelings illustrate that power is associated with the reduced tendency to comprehend how others see the world, how others think about the world, and how others feel about the world. Beyond the effects of a power dynamic on our ability to take perspectives of others, it can also affect how those lower in a hierarchy interact with those in higher positions, making communication even more difficult. For instance, subordinates may be afraid of looking unqualified, leading them to fear asking questions or clarifying doubts about their jobs or missions. This can widen the gap in understanding, with a leader who is less prone to effective perspective-taking working with others who avoid essential communication in the first place. I experienced this firsthand in a jiu-jitsu tournament a few years ago. Late in the match, I had a large points lead. But it had been a grueling match against a game opponent with a huge gas tank and no quit in them. With about a minute left, I found myself in a dominant position, and I decided my best course of action was to hold position and ride out the clock. This is when my instructor chimed in with some advice, something about moving my left hand to their hip. I dutifully followed their advice, and before I knew what was happening, my opponent was scrambling around like a rabid monkey. My instructor had inadvertently told me to move the wrong arm because, from their perspective, the left hand needed to move. But it really should have been my right arm. So instead of trapping my opponent, I had basically invited them to escape the position. By the time the ensuing scramble got back to the feet, I was totally gassed. And over the next minute, my instructor kept yelling instructions about taking down my opponent. They didn't notice that I was completely smoked, and all I needed to do to win the match was to play defense, which is a much lower energy task. 
Fortunately, I had stopped listening by this point and successfully navigated the remaining time. My instructor had committed two of the three errors we noted above. First, they didn't consider my visual perspective, which resulted in instructing me to move the wrong arm. And second, they didn't read my physical and emotional state and match their coaching accordingly. It's important to note that my instructor really cared about my success, and we spoke afterward about what happened. They felt personally responsible for my readiness, which, as we'll explore later, is crucial in avoiding or learning from these scenarios. Other research has examined the relationship between power and self-awareness by looking at the results of 360 feedback surveys. In these surveys, you pick about a dozen trusted people from your organization and ask them to give you anonymous feedback. You also do a self-assessment at the same time. So how do you think you're doing? How do others think you're doing? And how different are those two things? When the people giving feedback are on roughly the same tier in the organization as the person receiving it, the two forms of feedback usually line up pretty closely. The subject thinks that they're doing about as well as those around them believe that they're doing. But as their power within the organization increases, so does the gap between their self-assessment and the opinions of their colleagues. Power seems to reduce our capacity for self-awareness. Each step up the ladder makes it harder not to turn into Michael Scott from the office. There are multiple aspects to this dynamic that are unrelated to self-awareness. One possibility is that as people move upward in a hierarchy, they're more likely to be surrounded by yes-man types who are afraid to give them negative feedback and allow them to become increasingly disconnected from reality by shaping an overly optimistic worldview. In this case, it's essential for somebody in a leadership position to identify and promote those who are willing to give necessary but uncomfortable feedback. Some organizations, including many soft units, do this deliberately. The U.S. Army's Tier 1 unit, Delta, does a post-mission hot wash in which every operator discusses what went well and what they could do better to improve their effectiveness in the future. They do this with no regard for rank. The goal is to include the voice of everyone on the team and specifically highlight vulnerabilities so that they can continuously become more capable. A key variable in the curse of knowledge is a feeling of responsibility. Feeling responsible, rather than shifting blame or throwing our hands up in the air in frustration, increases empathy and reduces the curse of knowledge. To displace responsibility and blame those around us for not getting it is no different than being the person struggling with the song tapping game and tapping harder or trying the same English phrase more slowly and loudly. We get more frustrated while making things worse. If we can view ourselves as working with our audience or partners to unravel obstacles, it will improve our capacity for good communication. Or, to take it a step further, assume complete personal responsibility for the results your students get. Approach the situation with the perspective that if they don't understand what you're trying to teach, it's your fault. This means that it's on you to figure out what you're missing and how you could communicate better rather than telling yourself that you did what you could and they just couldn't get it. A good first step if you feel yourself losing something in translation and thinking, how can you just not get this, 
is to take a pause and ask yourself a question from the book Crucial Conversations. Why would a reasonable, rational, and decent person act this way? This can help disrupt the curse of knowledge, give you better perspective, and improve your ability to see things from the other person's point of view. The curse of knowledge, while a pervasive hurdle in both personal and professional communication, is not an insurmountable one. Alongside assuming a strong sense of responsibility for a given interaction, there are several strategies that individuals and organizations can use to bridge the knowledge gap and foster clearer communication. These strategies are essential for enhancing understanding and building stronger, more cooperative relationships among individuals with varying levels of expertise. The first is active listening, a cornerstone of effective communication. It entails not merely hearing, but understanding and processing the information being shared. In other words, we see what we look for. So approaching a conversation with an open mind and curiosity about the particular perspective of the person we're talking to can help us keep from missing key information or only hearing what we'd expected or wanted to hear. In conversation, it's imperative to listen attentively, ask clarifying questions, and avoid making assumptions about what the other person knows. By practicing active listening, we can better gauge the level of understanding of our audience, adjust our language or explanation accordingly, and ensure that we convey our message accurately. The next way to combat the curse of knowledge is by simplifying language. This involves avoiding jargon, acronyms, or complex terms that are unfamiliar to others. This is especially important if you're communicating with somebody from another country whose native language is not the same as yours. Any language, or even local dialect, use expressions or idioms that make sense internally but make absolutely no sense to others. So, if you're an American talking to somebody speaking English as a second language, try to avoid using phrases like cold turkey, spill the beans, or piece of cake, because to many people outside the U.S., they make you sound insane. Instead, adopting plain language and explaining concepts in a straightforward, accessible manner can make a big difference. Remember that simplicity does not equate to a lack of sophistication. On the contrary, the ability to explain complex ideas in simple terms often demonstrates a deeper understanding of the subject matter. Another tool is a resonance check or a check for understanding. Routinely check for understanding during communication, especially when explaining complex or new concepts. We can do this by asking open-ended questions, encouraging feedback, in creating an environment where people feel comfortable expressing their thoughts or asking questions. It can also be helpful to have students demonstrate a concept rather than just tell you that they understand. Somebody learning something new isn't always aware of what they don't know. So having them show you, for instance, how to turn the steering wheel if you want the boat to turn left can help both of you know with confidence that you've conveyed the information needed without gaps or faulty assumptions. By checking for understanding, we can identify and address any misconceptions or knowledge gaps, ensuring that everyone is on the same page. 
Visual aids like diagrams, charts, infographics, and real-world examples can effectively clarify complex ideas. They provide a visual representation or a tangible scenario to help individuals better grasp a concept. If you flip through our book, for example, you'll see many places where we've clarified a concept using a graphic, which is often the best way to make dense or abstract information seem more straightforward. This helps us cater to different learning styles, making the information more accessible and understandable to a broader audience. Adopting a learner-centric approach is particularly beneficial in coaching and teaching scenarios. This is a form of cognitive empathy, where you may not directly feel what your student feels, but you can at least take their perspective and understand their experience. It's a way of seeing the world through their eyes and state of mind, accounting for all the small assumptions you might make from your position of greater knowledge and closing these gaps. This involves understanding the learner's prior knowledge, interests, and learning preferences, and then tailoring the communication or instruction accordingly. Fostering a growth mindset, the belief that abilities and intelligence can be developed through effort and learning, can also play a vital role in mitigating the curse of knowledge. When people believe that they can learn and grow, they're more likely to ask questions, seek clarification, and engage in constructive dialogue, all of which contribute to clearer communication and a more engaged learning environment. By incorporating these strategies, Individuals and organizations can take significant strides towards overcoming the challenges posed by the curse of knowledge, lead to more effective communication, enhance understanding, and ultimately more fruitful interpersonal interactions and relationships. That's all for today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and leave us a review. It really makes a difference and helps others discover our podcast. And if you think someone you know might enjoy this episode, please share it with them. To learn more about training for special operations or elite tactical fields, please visit our website, buildingtheelite.com. There you can find many free resources for anyone interested in doing hard things well and training options for a wide range of careers. From special operations prep, to civilians looking to become more fit, capable, and resilient. On our site, you can find free training guides that help you understand the preparation process for various soft selection courses. We have a free profile tool that will analyze your individual performance data, compare it to standards needed to succeed in your chosen selection course, and highlight your limiting factors and what you should prioritize in your training. We also have training programs that address the full spectrum of performance development from physical to mental and include daily mental skill practices to help train the mental and emotional skills necessary to excel in challenging careers.